Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time of the Ben Jarofsky show as I speak. It is, oh, it's Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's, everyone. February 14th. Don't forget to get some chocolate, candy. <laughs> I'm not even taking my own advice, man. I don't even get, get chocolate and candy. You know, when you've been married as long as I have, every day is Valentine's Day. My distinguished guest is nodding his head because he agrees with what I said. Uh, he would be nodding his head anyway because he doesn't want to be saying anything other than that. All right. As I uh, always do, I give you a sense of what's going on in the world. I will read to you a, um, uh, a headline in the uh, from uh, the papers to give you, uh, wow, this one is kind of relevant uh, in many ways to what we're talking about. And this has to do with the, um, uh, the race for... Uh, to fill the vacancy in New York uh, for George Santos' seat. George Santos, other utterly disgraceful human being. Uh, and, and yeah, kind of me wanted him to remain in Congress. I know it sounds really perverse. He's a guy who lied continually uh, and uh, was a Republican elected in a swing district, uh, mainly because the Democrats of New York are completely and utterly incompetent. Uh, but so he uh, eventually was kicked out of Congress. Uh, and uh, there's a special election call to fill out his term. So there's going to be another election in November. Uh, and it was uh, a former congressman named Tom Susie, the Democrat, against uh, Mazi Phillip, the Republican, uh, and the Democrat won. Uh, and it was a, pr- a fairly decisive victory for the swing district, something like 54% of the vote. Uh, and uh, one of the reasons that... Um, the Democrats prevailed in this swing district is that once again, uh, the issue of abortion uh, is a very important factor. And that's just becoming clearer and clearer and clearer. I don't think there's been an instance where uh, the pro-abortion candidate uh, in a swing district has lost since Roe was overturned uh, by the Supremes. And um, <laughs> But it's so funny, man. The New York Times cracks me up. Before I bring my distinguished guest, uh, the New York Times cracks me up with this one. They are just such a a weird newspaper in so many ways. Uh, So, you know, they're 
The New York Times is essentially um, their editorial page is what we call classic liberal uh, editorial page, and they've been now did denounced as liberal uh, by the right for years and years. And in their effort to prove that they're not what they are, they bend over backwards <laughs> to appease the right. It's such a joke. It's actually become a, it's a caricature of itself. Uh, and so here this was a significant win, fairly much a trouncing uh, of the Republicans by the Democrats in a district, a swing district that had gone Republican, uh, in which was continuing a trend that has been going on, like I said, for over a year, uh, where in swing districts, the um, the Democrats do well because the Republicans are becoming so a- alienated. The MAGA Republicans are becoming so alienated from anything that remotely resembles uh, mainstream America. Uh, and it's just a cult. And so um, here, once again, uh, this pattern continues uh, and here's the New York Times conclusion in their article about it. Uh, political strategists of all stripes caution against drawing sweeping conclusions from special elections. <laughs> the contest can offer a snapshot of political energy at a moment in time, but they are far from predictive. First of all, that is so outrageous. Political strategists of the MAGA uh, variety never de- never caution against drawing sweeping conclusions from any kind of a, if they if anyone remotely resembling a MAGA creature wins an election, they pronounce it as a great triumph for Trump and MAGA and an indication uh, that this country is really MAGA and that the last election was stolen. So it's not even true. In their effort to bend over backwards and suck up to MAGA, they're not even accurate. Why do I read the New York Times? I don't know. Not only do I read it, I subscribe to it. That's a cry for help. I'm holding it up. Literally, you're welcome, New York Times. Now, stop being such babies. Write the news as it is, man. Don't try to kiss MAGA's butt. MAGA hates you. All right, enough of that. Without further ado, I'm going to ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself, and then we are going to take it away. Distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Ben, thanks for having me. Um, Patrick Wool here, um, author of the new book, uh, Down Ballot, How a Local Campaign Became a National Referendum on Abortion. Very timely, like you said, with all these elections. And you're right. Nobody has, nobody has lost on, on, on that side of the issue since, uh, since the Dobbs decision. So it's certainly been politically you know, difficult for Republicans. We can, we can get into that in a little bit. For sure. Yeah, we will. Uh, and, uh, I, you know, I just had a, uh, a loss of time, Patrick. This happens to me all the time. When did the Dobbs decision come down? Was it June of 2023? Am I right in that? Or have I lost completely a year? It was, was it 2022? Yeah, it was June 2022. Wow, man, that is so deep. So much time. It has been. Oh, my goodness. You're absolutely correct. 2022, because of the midterms. It has been since 2022 uh, that... Uh, this pattern has continued. The midterms, you're right, 2022 midterms, uh, the, the Democrats did much better than anyone predicted because of this. Uh, in statewide referendums, like in Ohio and Kansas, the Democrats did, or the uh, pro-choice side did much better uh, than experts would have predicted. Uh, and we're seeing this pattern continue into 2024. Uh, and I do believe it's going to be a significant force uh, in the uh, November presidential election in swing states like Wisconsin and Michigan and Arizona and Pennsylvania and uh, Georgia, et cetera, and so forth. 
Uh, the significance of your book uh, is not so much with those top ballot races like president. It is, just as the title says, the down ballot races. Uh, and in many ways, I think your book should be read, required reading for Democrats, because the Democratic Party, this is me speaking, not Patrick, uh, has been asleep at the wheel, generally speaking. On lo- They get all excited, Patrick, about uh presidential elections. I'm really geared up for this one. And they fall asleep when it comes to local elections because I guess it's not glamorous enough for them. You know, the Dems, uh, it's just, I don't know, that's too much hard work to worry about a state representative race. Uh, But the subtitle of your book says it all. How local campaign, how a local campaign became a national referendum on abortion. Uh, And so this is some ancient history you relatively ancient history you get into uh, an election that took place, uh, I think, before you were born, Patrick. Um, So why don't you lead uh, folks through this suburban uh, election, a suburban Republican primary between Penny Pollan and Rosemary Mulligan, and the floor is yours to get us going. Set the table for us a little bit, Patrick. Well, I'll set the table with who who these two women were, because I think that's that's helpful. And they really kind of represent, and, and just like you, you, you mentioned the thousands of state legislators across the country who are really the ones who impact our daily lives, who pass a lot of bills, um, but get very, very little attention. And I would say both Penny and Rosemary represent different ends of the political spectrum. Um, uh, both, you know, in our party nationwide and particularly in Illinois, this is kind of a, a battle between two sides. Um, uh, especially in the Republican Party of Illinois that, that continues today. So uh, the sto- story mainly takes place in, in 1990. And at that point, uh, Penny Pollan was uh, was a longtime legislator in the northwest suburbs of, of Chicago. She was uh, living in Park Ridge. The district was essentially Park Ridge and, and Desplaines. And she was someone I would describe at the time as kind of a conservative rising star in the state and in uh, national politics, not something, not someone, someone, uh, may have necessarily heard of unless they're paying very close attention, but she was involved in all sorts of, uh, very conservative causes, you know, uh, when the equal rights amendment was being debated in, in Illinois, uh, she was one of the principal opponents of that. And so when Illinois was, was debating the ERA and a lot of people don't know, Illinois was kind of the center of that for a long time, uh, you would have advertisements in papers across uh, across the state uh, talking about rallies that would be held in Springfield. And you would see Phyllis Schlafly, the principal opponent, Jerry Falwell, who, who we all know, and uh, Penny Pullen would also be featured. And so uh, she was a little more behind the scenes than some of those people, but certainly very, very involved. And a lot of people knew her too at the time because she was appointed uh, to all sorts of presidential commissions. Uh, and there's, there's, I mean, there's thousands of presidential commissions. It's a thing, you know, most people don't hear about very much, but she was appointed to one get, that got a lot of national attention uh, that had to do with uh, HIV AIDS. Uh, obviously president Reagan got a lot of criticism for not responding for responding very slowly and they put together a panel with 13 people. And Penny Pullen, this state legislator from the northwest suburbs of Illinois, 
was one of 13 people in the country that they thought could help, uh, you know, craft a problem to uh, a solution to this, this problem. And we can, we can talk about that more, but she passed all sorts of bills in the, in the general assembly that got a lot of criticism. Um, uh, uh, but on all of all issues, uh, abortion was, was kind of her, her guiding one. And she was one of the leaders in the pro-life movement in Illinois. And I would say she sort of represents the, you know, evangelical Republican we, we talk about today. Uh, she's very conservative, deeply religious, you know, I wouldn't say she's a showy person, but she's someone who very works very, very much behind the scenes you might not know about. And um, in 1990, she was challenged by Rosemary Mulligan. Um, and Rosemary is sort of on the other side of the spectrum. She's someone I would describe more as the, you know, moderate suburban woman, maybe someone who used to vote Republican, but increasingly uh, the party has shifted and the age of Trump and things like that. And probably votes a lot more democratic now, but she was uh, eventually became a, a longtime legislator, not to give away things. Uh, but she was uh, eventually became, you know, an advocate uh, for the pro-choice cause, obviously in Illinois, she was a, a huge um, uh, champion of the LGBT community. She actually cast one of the, the tie-breaking votes on civil unions uh, before she, when she was actually in failing health. So, uh, definitely on the other end of the spectrum, uh, politically on social issues, but, um, equally as, as passionate uh, about her causes. And so they kind of represent those two spectrums politically of, of, of the country now. Now, before you go any further, let me just, uh, highlight something you said, and we'll go back to the narrative. Um, so concentrate on what Patrick said, this is a Republican primary. So if you just came of age uh, in the last eight years politically and all you know is politics post-Trump, uh, this this is a phenomenon that is unimaginable to you. But here you had an entrenched Republican incumbent challenged in a Republican primary from the left. I mean, it's I got left in quotes, Patrick, because it's. Uh, it's still the Republican left, but in in just in terms of the Republican Party itself, uh, Rosemary Mulliken was the quintessential moderate, uh, Republican moderate. And uh, she saw the trend that I was talking about at the outset of the show long before uh, uh, anybody else did, really, or not anybody else, but long before most people, definitely long before, say, let's say the New York Times did, uh, and um, to pick on them again. And she realized that uh, Penny Pollan was out of step where, from where suburbanites were. Uh, and so this is, anyway, it's like a four, it's like a, a pre-shadowing of what is happening now, only now it would be a Democrat running against an entrenched Republican conservative in the general election. It's just unimaginable that a moderate could run against uh, a MAGA Republican in a district that was designed uh, for Republicans because moderates have been kicked out of the party. So do you follow what I'm saying, Patrick? This is, in many ways, um, it's unimaginable to, to just to think that uh, you could have a situation, let's say, where a Mike Bost uh, would be challenged from the the left or the 
the moderate side of things uh, here in Illinois. Mary Miller, who's from uh, a MAGA congresswoman from down, <laughs> from down, you should see Patrick's face from downstate. Um, so anyway, that's the, that's the important point. I think, I think things have changed. Uh, things have changed a lot, certainly. And I think Illinois, <clears throat> you, you definitely still have, at least in the general assembly, I'm pretty sure there's some pro pro choice, uh, Republicans, um, but back no. the, back then, are there none anymore? None, none, zero. Oh well, yeah, I, Terry Cosgrove. I, I learned from young Terry. Yeah, you said correct. I stand yeah. corrected. Okay, well, well, Terry would know best. Uh, yeah. But uh, it, you know, it's it's interesting. Well, that that's a good point because it's interesting how much the the politics have changed um, in Illinois in the '90s. You had you know in the '90s, it was sort of a weird coalition of people. Um, you had a lot of Catholic Democrats who were, who were pro-life. I mean, Mike Madigan at the, at the time of this story was, uh, was considered pro-life and would, would push some of those bills through the general assembly, which I think people forget. Now, I think, I don't know that that's necessarily a thing that motivated him. I think he was more concerned with, you know, other things in power in his caucus. Uh, but it's still, it's still interesting, um, to see that transformation. And I mean, you had, uh, uh, Black Democrats who were who were pro life, um, you know, often again driven by faith in that in that same way, and a lot, and, and again back then, re- suburban Republicans who were were pro choice, uh, but that uh, is, is is not the case anymore. And actually, the the um, we can, when we get to the you know the actual cause of this, there was a bill that sparked this whole campaign before the General Assembly. And it was introduced uh, in an emergency session when this was all going down, and it, it uh, had a uh, it was failed by one vote from a Republican. So it was actually a Republican who prevented uh, in 1989 the abortion laws in Illinois from changing. So certainly a different makeup than than it is today. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, okay, so that's the, the the setting. So Rosemary Mulligan is challenging Penny Pollan. Uh, from the left or from the middle, whatever you want to call it. It's literally the left because it's to the left of uh, Penny Poland. Uh, so talk about that first run in 1990. Well, and this is all sparked from, I would say, something that really parallels today. And that's what I try to get at um, in the book. And I think people will appreciate from the book is you have uh, a, a recent president who had appointments to the Supreme Court who made changes People are uh, thinking that maybe Roe v. Wade is going to overturn. Then there's a big case that people are talking about. And there's a change made from the court that sparks, uh, you know, political campaigns and and a backlash for some people across the country. And that sounds a lot like what's happened the last couple of years. But this is 1989 and 1990. uh, And there's a lot of parallels. So in, in 1989, there was a Supreme Court case called Webster v. Reproductive Health Services. And this case at the time, people thought was uh, an opening for conservatives to overturn Roe. Um, and they didn't end up doing that. Uh, but what they did do is uphold uh, a Missouri law that had all sorts of restrictions on abortion. People at the time called it the kitchen sink law because it was just f- uh, full of things like waiting periods and all the things, you know, legislators kind of layer on to, to make it more difficult. And what happened after this is there were all sorts of copycat laws. And 
Illinois became one of the first states to move on this. And the person leading the way, of course, was Penny Pollan. Uh, and she introduced a bill in the, in the General Assembly uh, during an emergency session in late 1989 uh, that would copy the Missouri law. It uh, had um, all sorts of restrictions on it. Um, and it ended up failing by, by one vote. Uh, but it caused all sorts of uh, protests in the northwest suburbs in her district. Um, and uh, in after this, uh, as this was happening, there was a rally that took place in Park Ridge uh, in her district. And uh, a paralegal named Rosemary Mulligan attended. People didn't really know who she was. She wasn't particularly politically involved. And people viewed it as essentially an anti-Penny Poland rally. And during the rally, someone yelled, you know, one of you has to step up and, and challenge Penny Poland. And so they marched to the streets, did the, did the rally. And uh, Rosemary thought about it while she was getting coffee with some friends after at the, the Pickwick Theater in Park Ridge, which is uh, still around. And she said, I'll do it. I'll do it for two cents. And one of the women reached, uh, reached in her purse, handed her two pennies to, to take on Penny Poland. <laughs> <laughs> didn't take much pushing uh anyway once again the driving force uh is the restriction of abortion rights and you're absolutely correct uh, one of the first supreme court rulings that eroding abortion rights in this country without literally throwing a roe v wade out completely which the supremes of course did in 2022 as we already alluded all right so um it's, in most it's interesting this is one of the times that um you know sandra day o'connor passed a couple months ago and this was a case that she had a lot of heartburn over and there's all sorts of stories about her battling her colleagues to try to like cobble together a consensus of some kind because you know scalia and others wanted to overturn it and if you read the opinion i mean she was just just they tore her to pieces for not wanting to to uh to take up that issue and completely overturn it and eventually she she kept doing that throughout her tenure, but obviously that that didn't last up until the Dobbs decision. But I, I want to make one point about why this is like national, why why this has any significance at the time on the national level, uh, and it's because after this decision, this was the first campaign that happened after the Supreme Court ruling, uh, because this was the March 1990 primary, and so people on uh, both sides, pro-choice, pro-life wanted to set an example essentially and show that their side was you know had the had the winning side politically and so all this money started pouring in uh from um groups on both sides of the debate and this was actually uh, you mentioned terry this was one of the first campaigns that personal pack was involved in uh and it was essentially a marquee race they weren't necessarily going to get involved with it originally and rosemary sort of uh pushed her way into to getting their support and it ended up being a, a big victory for them. But uh, on the pro-life side too, I mean, there were national, you know, right to life groups and all sorts of other folks who were very involved in this. I mean, the McCaskies, the owners of the Chicago bears were, uh, were big boosters of, of uh, Penny Poland because they were, you know, driven by that, that they were pro-life driven by that cause. Uh, you had Henry Hyde, whose uh, district uh, overlapped with Penny Pullen. And for those who probably recognize the name, Heinrich Hyde's the namesake of the Hyde Amendment, uh, which prevents you know, federal funds from being, go, going towards abortion. So uh, he was involved in the race. Um, 
you had uh, all sorts of uh, national visitors. The, the DeVos family, Richard DeVos, hosted a fundraiser uh, in the district for Penny Poland during this time. And so here you have uh, someone who was involved nationally on the Republican Party level who w- ran a huge corporation, was actually one of the wealthiest people in the country, hosting a fundraiser for this, you know, from the looks of it, no-name legislator, Penny Poland in the northwest suburbs. So people were really paying attention to this because they viewed it as uh, a litmus test on the issue of abortion. Uh, and the coverage of, of that uh uh, certainly reflected that the, the days after. I mean, national news, uh, Diane Sawyer was, was on TV talking about it, all, all sorts of folks really viewing it as that litmus test. Yeah, so it was a litmus test on abortion. I just want to point something else out. Uh, the um, This was not an instance where a down-ballot race was lost by the incumbent because the incumbent fell asleep, as uh, Patrick Wall just uh, you know uh, pointed out. This was a case where Pollen and her backers were very much uh, awake. They wouldn't say they were woke. Uh, they would hate it if I they knew that. <laughs> or that but they were very woke. So this is not like when I don't know. I'll give you an example. Um, Jesus Garcia uh, around in the nineties was a state senator. And he lost uh, in a Democratic primary essentially because he and his uh, progressive allies were sound asleep. This is something that Democrats do a lot of. No, the MAGA. They weren't MAGA, but they were the pre- predecessors of MAGA were very much alert to uh, the um, the implications of this race, uh, as Patrick just uh, noted. All right, so let's talk about the outcome of the race—a ferocious race, um, a litmus test. Uh, both the pro and uh, anti-choice sides are alert to it, uh, and they're battling hard. What was the outcome? Well, it was uh, a very uncertain outcome uh, on election night. And on election night, it came down to 31 votes. Um, Rosemary Mulligan won, won the day on March 20th, 1990. And they were very excited, like I said, all sorts of attention the next day about how this was a, a, a huge victory for the pro-choice side. But they realized right away that there had been an error in the counting. So uh, one of the precincts was double counted. It's the sort of, you know, casual error that happens in all sorts of elections that gets gets resolved, um, but or or usually just doesn't matter because if it, unless it's you know super close like this. And uh, so there was a recount that took place, and they started the process of hiring their attorneys. Uh, they hired uh, Bert Olson, who's a well-known uh, uh, election attorney in Illinois. Uh, he represented Rosemary Mulligan along with others. And Mike Lavelle, who was a very well-known uh, election lawyer, people referred to him as the, the dean of Illinois election lawyers at the time, uh, who was actually a mentor of uh, Olson. Uh, he represented uh, Penny Pullen. And uh, they battled it out in court. And the process of a recount is not exactly sexy. You sit in a, a warehouse, they go through the ballots. And the, the contention here, the thing they were looking at was uh, which votes to count that had dimple chads. And we all know that that term, obviously. Um, and they were deciding which ones uh, to set aside that they would argue for in court. So they went through that whole process, went before a circuit judge in Cook County, and would argue over each ballot. Uh, this shouldn't count because X, Y, Z. 
you know, it's not dimpled enough. I can't see the light going through the hole that the voter uh, punched through. Therefore, it shouldn't count. Kind of a fuzzy standard. There really was no standard. And so uh, they're going through this process. They, they, they reach the final ballot as the, the judge is putting them above his head, flipping them back and forth, making his ruling. And he was not keeping count at that time. And, but the lawyers were. And so on the last ballot, they set it down. And uh, one of the attorneys said to the judge, judge, I think we have a tie. And they did. It was tied 7,387 7, to 7,387. So, uh, you know, the recount process is very, very complex. It's very labor intensive. There's a lot of money spent. You know, they'd spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on this campaign. Uh, but in the event of a tie, the, the law was was much clearer. You, you flip a coin. Um, you flip a coin or you can uh, pull, pull names out of a hat. So they flipped a coin. And in July of 1990, uh, Rosemary Mulligan called tails and, and won the coin toss. And obviously this provided fuel for the, for the media attention too because it was just a, a great uh, tie-in for this as well. But uh, coin toss was not that particularly important. It really just determined who you know, who would appeal the case. And in an election case like this, it goes straight to the, the state Supreme Court. So um, the Illinois Supreme Court uh, uh, took it up and uh, sent it back to the circuit judge to say, hey, you need to uh, reach a, 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 a agreement over or certain disputed ballots. So they went through the whole process again, sent it back to the court, uh, the, the state Supreme Court, excuse me, and uh, they issued a, f- a final decision where Penny Pollan had won by just six votes uh, in the end, which was certainly uh, disappointing for, for Rosemary Mulligan and became uh, an important case later on with respect to Dimple Chads as well. Absolutely. And that important case that Patrick has alluded to, of course, was a Bush versus Gore uh, in uh, Florida, uh, which went to the Supremes, uh, Supreme Court. In Washington and Scalia, they wrote, <laughs> speaking of Scalia, oh, God, Scalia, what a piece of work. Anyway, he uh, rewrote, figured out a way to, to kick the election of Bush. Uh, and, uh, so the, by calling off the um, uh, the recount in Florida. But t- t- to your point, that recount, that's where most people in the country heard of things like dimple chads, where you were trying to decipher the intent of the voter on a ballot that had not completely been punched through uh, by, like, you're right, is there light coming through the little dimple? Uh, because maybe he didn't push or she didn't push hard enough, but the, but this shows that that's what he intended, uh, and that's what a recount comes to here. It's a very laborious, time-consuming. It'll drive you mad, or it would drive me mad. I don't have that kind of brain, Patrick, that can process that information. First of all, I don't even like being inside too long. I'd be want I gotta go outside, get fresh air. Uh, <laughs> anyway, well, I think uh, I so, think it did. I think it did drive people a little nuts uh, here in this case, and it certainly did in Florida later on. And the reason people were going so crazy is because they were looking at cases like the Poland case. Um, and what ended up happening in Florida was the Gore team, uh, used this case as did the Bush team, but the Gore team used it to argue, Hey, here's this Illinois case. It says that you should count dimple chads. Uh, and the problem was that's not what the Illinois Supreme court said. They said to the extent a voter's intent 
can be determined, then you can count a ballot, which is a very different thing from saying you must count all dimple chads. And so things were very different back then. You know, you couldn't just go up and look on the computer, pull up the case file or whatever. Things were put away in warehouses somewhere in Cook County, you know, collecting dust and over cobwebs. And so the Gore team found this, uh, they found an, uh, an article in the Chicago Tribune talking about this case that said they had counted Dimple Chad. So they called up uh, Lavelle, the lawyer who had worked on it, and said, you know, will you sign an affidavit saying that this is what the case held? Uh, because they couldn't find it. They couldn't just look it up. So they said, we need it quick. This is what we'll do instead of digging through a warehouse. And so Lavelle signed an affidavit, said, yeah, this is what it held. And they used that to argue before uh, canvassing boards in Florida that, yes, you should count these. Um that ended up in uh, with with the, the the Bush team arguing that they were misrepresenting the case. They had all sorts of ethics accusations. It was an innocent uh, mistake, uh, and he he wasn't reprimanded or anything like that. The the attorneys, um, but it but it caused confusion. And the reason that's important is because relying on cases like Poland and Florida uh, meant that some counties were counting dimple chads, others were not. And you mentioned, you know, the Supremes. Uh, I, I like that. I'm going to steal that. The Supremes, when they, when they, when they, when they, when they were looking at this, uh, the reason that they ruled in Bush's favor, they said there was a, an equal protection violation, and the reason was they're because of these different counting standards, and that was due to cases like Poland v. Mulligan. So I like to say the next time you think, uh, you know, local politics or local campaigns is uninteresting or inconsequential, just take a look at this race. Yeah, I'll push back just a little bit uh, what you said when you said the reason they ruled the way they did uh, was because of this uh, technical matter that you alluded to. And I would say uh, and it's OK. We don't agree on everything. The reason they ruled the way they did is because they wanted George Bush to be president. They didn't want Al Gore to be president. So they said, hey, they said to the clerk, find me some reason to justify making Bush the president. I don't care what the reason is. Just do anything. All right. I'm busy now. I'm watching reruns of Dark Shadows. Don't bother me. Just get me that ruling. And that's, I don't know about the Dark Shadows thing. I don't know why I even thought of Dark Shadows. I don't think any listener out there knows what Dark Shadows is. Uh, but I, I, it's for some reason, I think of the Scalio. I thought of Dark Shadows. Isn't that weird? Well, it's funny, um, it's funny the politics of it, too, because there's a, there's a good tie-in here. Um, the two lawyers, Mike Lavelle was representing Poland, the conservative candidate, Bert Olson was representing Mulligan, the more moderate or liberal candidate. And they both worked on the 2000 case uh, in Florida. They were hired to, to argue before canvassing boards and they flipped. Uh, Olson worked for Bush, the, the Republican, and uh, Lavelle worked for Gore, the Democrat. So uh, interesting tie in. It knows no politics, some of these issues. Absolutely. And, and, and this is a, a favorite theme on this show when it comes to election law. No, no show in the world takes a deep dive in election law quite as much as this one. We just did a whole show, Patrick, uh, on uh, whether um, the uh, uh, Trump should be booted from the ballot for, ballot, uh, for his insurrection. Uh, but uh, if you're a, an election lawyer, you're going to make a living out of it. You got to be ready to you know, one day you're working for the Dems, the next day you're working for the Republicans. One day you're keeping someone on the ballot, the next day you're booting them off the ballot. It's it's business, baby. That's what it is. Uh, and nothing illustrates this quite as much as Laval and Olson uh, well, doing their 
as a, as a future as a future lawyer in a couple months here when I take the bar I'll, I'll defend the, I'll defend the profession but one one thing I was going to say too that is sort of interesting about this whole thing is that we don't really have recounts like this anymore I mean this is not a thing where you're going through and arguing about these dimple chats because we've changed the technology um, mostly because of because of the Bush v. Gore and you know the kind of chaos it caused, the the last time these punch card ballots were used, um, they're they're completely phased out now uh, all throughout the country. The last time they were used were just in two counties in Ohio in twenty or Idaho rather in twenty fourteen. So they're not really used. But I think what a lot of people and this is one thing that that struck me in writing this, especially with all the conversation about elections and, and all the misinformation that goes around, is just how um, how secure our elections are and the fact that the vast vast majority it's something like 95 percent of jurisdictions people vote in a in a uh, with a verifiable paper trail whether that's they're marking it by hand or you're putting it to a machine that you know prints something out that you can look at and then hand to someone i, I i'm with you 100 percent on this point and before we go to the concluding chapter of this I, I i just have to say how much i agree with that point um i i know in a in a tight race, it's like a I'm a basketball junkie, Pat uh, Patrick. So everything comes down to basketball for me. And in a very tight, I don't know if you're a basketball fan, but in a very tight game, uh, it'll often come down to a last second call by a referee. Uh, and the, I've been on the losing end of those calls many times. And I, you should hear me ranting and railing. The referees don't like the Bulls. It's a bias, etc., and so forth. Uh, and then when it works to the Bulls' advantage. I, my attitude is, oh, poor babies, tough luck. So, in other words, it's just really difficult to um, accept a loss in a close game and a close contest. Uh, and so I know that in that 1990 election, uh, supporters of abortion rights were really, it was just like a, a punch to the stomach to have it, this contested... You said the, the the primary date was in March, and it was in June, I think, is what you said, uh, the timeline for when the final decision. And to go through that three months or whatever that is, uh, Patrick, just wrenching ups and downs and uh, the coin flip itself. I mean, it was – I remember it was just like every day moment every moment in that case is like this decisive you know issue like one day be up they just d- discovered three dimple chads that are putting in for you know for uh penny pollen and so I, I i understand that but by and large if i'm stepping back i mean they're doing the best they can uh and donald trump and maga have done such a disservice uh to our democracy I mean, that wasn't even close. He got his butt whooped. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't like Rosemary Mulligan and Penny Pollen tied, literally tied Patrick. Trump got his butt whooped. But he's like, oh, it's fixed, which he was, he was prepared to argue if he, lo- if he lost, you know. Uh, so I agree with you. Um, I believe there are well-attended people up and down, uh, you know, in the courts and in the uh, Board of Elections who are trying to do the right thing. and uh, I. It's just a, such a disservice to them. A lot of people have faced very intense, you know, media, have gotten the media spotlight on them too. Like just your sort of run of the mill, uh, you know, election worker. You saw that during the January 6th hearings, you know, Ruby Freeman was one of them. And so it's sort of sad because people don't, 
you know, people go, they go, they're going into work like any other, uh, employee doing their job and then uh, get intense criticism uh, for really made up reasons. So I, I agree yeah, with made you. up reasons, total contrivances. You're right. Ruby and Ruby Freeman is the election law, uh, election employee in Georgia who ended up getting a I forget how many millions of dollars settlement and defamation case against Rudy Giuliani uh, after he just like just made up stuff about her. All right. So uh, the concluding chapter of what is really a fascinating moment in um, election history uh, in the 1990s was uh, you would think that Penny Pollan would move a little toward the middle, uh, having <laughs> barely won. You know what I'm saying? Like you read the tea leaves, but either you got to give her credit, I guess, for just staying true to herself. She didn't move to the middle uh, on uh, on any issue, let alone uh, abortion, setting up for the rematch. So why don't you explain, talk about what went down uh, when Mulligan ran against her a second time. Again, ladies and gentlemen, don't forget, these are two Republicans and they're running in a Republican primary. Go. Well, Rosemary really never gave up. She just she just kept running after the, the defeat uh, from the Supreme Court. And she, uh, I mean, she was <laughs> angry about it, but but moved on. And it's the, the paranoia about the court is funny, too, because that was a feeling among uh, the Rosemary Mulligan camp, too. Um, you know, Penny Pollan met on the day she appealed to the Illinois Supreme Court with one of the Illinois Supreme Court justices who was a, a con- well-known conservative. Now, they met about something completely unrelated. There was a reason, uh, if you accept that, she he recused himself. But it provided that fuel for people to feel like, oh, this was this was taken from us. Um, but in any case, uh, you're right. The, the politics really remained the same. But what changed was, uh, was the district. Uh, they were going through the redistricting process uh, at this time, Jim Edgar was was governor, and uh, the I bl- believe the general assembly was Democratic controlled uh, controlled by Democrats. Uh, but he essentially vetoed their maps. They went through this whole process of trying to figure out what the maps would look like. And in Illinois law, um, if it if it uh, happens like that where they can't agree, it goes to a commission. So there was a commission. Uh, commission couldn't agree. The law says at that time, I think it's changed. The law said the governor appoints someone. So he appointed the head of the Republican Party to be the tie breaking vote. So they essentially carved up the maps like, you know, any politician does. And I I don't I'm not a fan of both side isms, but this this I think is a genuine both side ism. Both parties do this <laughs> if, if they if they have power, you know, they're sort of shameless with the political maneuvering that goes on. You know, it happens in. Republicans complain about it in Illinois. Democrats complain about it in Texas. Um, but when Republicans controlled this process in the 90s in Illinois, they carved up the suburbs essentially to try to uh, to try to gain political power there. Obviously, Lee Daniels eventually became speaker just for a quick two uh, two years uh, during Madigan's little brief uh, interregnum there. But uh, Rosemary decided to run. And the maps were were released. And funny enough, uh, her house was cut out of the district by just <laughs> a few blocks, which infuriated her. And uh, yeah. so she she decided, hey, I'm going to I'm going to sell my house. Uh, and so that's what she she decided to do. She said, if I, if I win, I'll sell my house. Uh, and uh, eventually eventually did 
did did end up doing that. The 1992 1992 campaign was just as heated with all sorts of national attention. Lots of uh, uh, pro life and pro choice groups pumping in money. Um, I mean, this was a campaign that was, I would say, more more akin to like an expensive congressional race than uh, than a small state legislative uh, campaign. So they ran again, and uh, Rosemary Mulligan won a, uh, a a decisive victory in the end, uh, and has represented the uh, represented the fifty fifth district then f- uh, until uh, until twenty thirteen uh, when she when she retired. Yeah, and I just point out uh, the reason again that first election, which resulted in a tie, was the indication uh, that. Uh, suburban moderates were moving uh, toward the left, again, using these terms, uh, on abortion rights. Uh, 1992 election, the rematch, uh, made that obvious to everyone, uh, including a certain Michael Joseph Madigan that Patrick has alluded to a couple of times. So Madigan had been the speaker when uh, in 1990, and then he lost in 92. And uh, as Patrick said, he was in the wilderness. He was the minority leader in the House, and he spent two years. <laughs> totally mad. This is so Madigan. He spent two years preparing for that 94 election, uh, selecting candidates that he thought would be ideal for their districts, making sure they won their contested primaries and they would remain loyal to him. Uh, and then he took back the House in 94, and he began to make the move that you've already alluded to on uh, abortion rights. Uh, and uh, at the risk of sounding completely cynical and jaded, um, I believe it was a matter of him sensing where the um, the voters of Illinois were going on this issue and that realizing that if he wanted to hold on to the House, if he wanted to remain Speaker, uh, he would have to uh, be pro-choice. And uh, eventually he became one of the most pro-choice speakers, well, probably the, the most pro-choice speaker of the House that we've ever had until Chris Welch, who's the current one. Uh, and I think it's very good, Patrick, that uh, you pointed out that he allowed all kinds of, when he was the speaker back in these days, all kinds of wacko uh, anti-abortion measures. Uh, he would to go before the floor. He was doing this like beyond 94. He didn't literally turn overnight. It was a evolution on this issue, gay marriage. I can think of uh, that issue as well. Uh, on social issues, he realized, oh, if I'm going to hold on to my power, uh, I got to go where moderate voters are going on these social issues in the early ages of culture wars in Illinois. Uh, and that has prevailed. So I guess I you would say that um, the mulligan Poland uh, elections sort of revealed where Illinois was going uh, as, a, as a general statement, really 20 years before it got there. That's my thoughts. Go ahead. Yeah, I think so. And I think if you look even at the statewide politics, the last and obviously all these people vary in their their you know specific views on abortion. But you really I don't see how you can have a pro-life Republican be elected statewide. I mean, the last few governors have been uh, pro-choice or statewide officials, obviously, you know, Bruce Rauner, uh, Judy Bartopinka. Um, I think the last, uh, pro life elected official was Fitzgerald maybe in 90, I think he's 98 when he was elected. Uh, Talk about the senator? Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's really not a it. it they they can't Republicans can't win statewide on on that issue, um, and I think that this this ref, reflects that certainly. Um, yeah. Well, and 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 to your point about gerrymandering, uh, look, I share with you, uh, I have contempt for gerrymandering uh, as a principled point. But I'm agreeing with Terry Cosgrove. We've had, Terry's been on the show many times, and we uh, we're totally. Uh, uh, in, to the, point, the agreement that as long as you're not going to like what I'm about to say, Patrick, as long as Republicans are doing it in not just Texas, but North Carolina, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, am I forgetting some states here? Uh, Nebraska. Uh, I think I could go on and on with states I'm forgetting. Florida. Oh, my God. Florida. I mean, I can't think of an instance where where Republicans have ever, on their own, given up that power. Uh, it, the, the closest thing was when I just see this that uh, Democrat Republicans in some state just recently signed off on a measure that would potentially reduce their power to state because they were one step ahead of a court ordering a map that was even more restrictive than the ones that the Democrats were. Pro- I can't remember which state that was. It'll probably come to me after we're done recording. So my point is, I believe that we should have a federal law uh, outlawing uh, gerrymandering, have a national standard. But and I would until we get here, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I was going to say I would agree. That's probably the only way it's going to. It's kind of a piecemeal approach now happening. And uh, there's 21 states that have some sort of a commission, either a bipartisan or a nonpartisan commission. I mean, those certainly have their issues depending on how it's actually crafted. Illinois does it through the General Assembly, which is, I think, worse in a lot of ways because it's a much more political process. But it, it, it is interesting that, like, this is a piece of our history that has been around forever. I mean, it goes back to the Constitutional Convention as far back as then. I mean, when uh, Patrick Henry was governor of Virginia, uh, he tried to gerrymander, I think this is the first instance, tried to gerrymander James Madison uh, out of his, his district in um, in Virginia because he was, he you know, he's the father of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and Henry was opposed to the new Constitution. And so they tried to cut him out. It didn't work, thankfully. Um, but I mean, this, ha- this has happened for years and years. And, um, you know, I don't know if people know where the term comes from, too, but it's sort of an interesting uh, side note here. I'm getting sidetracked, but but that's OK. The uh, Elbridge Gary was the was the vice president of the United States under Madison. Uh, and, and, you know, we we forget about the Veeps, uh, unfortunately, uh, but he was vice president. But the reason he's known is because he was governor uh, of Massachusetts before he became vice president. And he signed one of the first. Uh, redistricting maps and was very heavily criticized as governor by the Boston press because they saw it as a, a huge, you know, craven political move. And it looked like the, the map in Massachusetts that he signed looked like a salamander, according to, to political people. So they called it uh, the Gary Mander. And uh, poor Elbridge Gary, we don't even remember his name anymore. So it's it's become gerrymandering. That's um, hilarious. That's his, that's his legacy. <laughs> you got the name wrong, too. I did not know that, man. That's pretty good. I give you credit for that. You know, I'm, I'm going to close by asking you the question I probably should have asked you at the, uh, for, at the start of the interview. My apologies for screwing that up. Uh, so, folks, you can't see Patrick, but he's very young. Uh, he's a young man. He's uh, 
going to be a lawyer soon, presuming he passes that bar. And as soon as uh, he's done with this recording, he's going to go back to studying. Uh, And um, so why do you care about uh, this 19? What what prompted you to write a book uh, about this this election battles between Mulligan and uh, Penny Pollock? Well, I, I grew up in the Northwest suburbs. I grew up in Park Ridge where this took place. I had always heard about the story. Um, like you said, I was, I, so I was born in, I was born in 94. This happened in 90 and 92. And so that was kind of good in a way because, uh, you know, I didn't have a dog in this fight, obviously, but I'd grown up hearing about this, grown up hearing about the coin toss, thought it was very interesting and kind of a mirror image of what's happening today. And nobody had written about this story before. Uh, and I thought it would be a good, you know, a good kind of way to, to tell the story. And it has so many um, tie-ins to today. But what I've really, uh, what I try to tell people is there's no political message in the book in the sense that um, there's a hero for everyone in this book. If you're pro-choice, you will admire you will admire Penny Paul, excuse me, you will admire Rosemary Mulligan as a, as a fierce defender of abortion rights, someone who, who did not care what her party thought and would, would buck them and just do what she thought was right. And if you're pro-choice, you will, or pro-life, you will admire um, Penny Poland. Um, and so at the end of the day, there's, you know, people aren't paying attention, especially because the media landscape has changed. Lots of local papers and news organizations are, are folding, unfortunately. And so it's harder to pay attention to these races. And so my only political message in this is that I hope people pay closer attention to their, to their local politics um, on the county board, on the state board level. You know, 80 percent of people cannot name a single state legislator of theirs. Um, uh, one in three people can't name their own governor, which is astonishing. So at the end of the day, the issues that impact us most, you know, they happen in state capitals, not in Washington. And on all of those issues, there's a Penny Pollen and there's a Rosemary Mulligan and they're watching closely. The only question is who's watching them. That's well put. Uh, and, uh, it's, it's, it's funny because here in Chicago, um, most voters, uh, I'm always making fun of the voters, uh, in Chicago, Patrick, what a piece of work they are. Uh, so most Chicago voters, uh, or most Chicago citizens, I should say, because most people, most people in Chicago who can vote don't vote. Uh, it's considered it's like a turnout of 37% is considered pretty good in, a, in Chicago. Just let's pause and think about that, ladies and gentlemen. So your average Chicagoan, uh, can tell you, pretty sure the average uh, Chicagoan can tell you who the president is, okay, of the United States, not of the county board, of the United States. Whether they know his first name is questionable, but they all know that Biden is involved in that name. Uh, they could definitely tell you uh, who the last president was because he had a TV show called The Apprentice. So they know him for that. All right. So they, this, I'm dealing with your Chicago voter. They could tell you who the mayor is and they have, they could tell you who their alderman. I live, the, you ask an average Chicago, what ward do you live in? And they'll struggle to remember the name of their alderman. And they'll tell you that's the ward. Like the war, like the, our wards are numbered. But if you hear an average Chicagoan talk about it, you think the wards are named after their alderman. 
Oh, I'm in uh, Silverstein's ward. Oh, is it the Silverstein ward? Is that the ward? I'm in uh, Burnett's ward. So, <laughs> you know, you are so far ahead of the average Chicagoan here uh, with your, your knowledge of politics. But, yeah, I believe the more we can get people to pay attention to what's going on, the better. Uh, if you want to offer any kind of thoughts, a rebuttal to my dismissive view of Chicagoans, the floor is now yours. No, well, I, 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 you've, you've encapsulated it there. I put the numbers out. You put a little color on it, which I, which I appreciate. <laughs> no, I, I, I genuinely I hope, I hope people uh, pay closer attention. I think one of the other huge lessons in this writing this was just like I kind of alluded to how much the media landscape has changed, uh, particularly outside Chicago. I mean, it, it, it's hard for your average Chicagoan to pay attention to what's happening in the city. It is much harder for people in other counties where there's no, no newspaper, no. And when I say newspaper, I mean any sort of news organization. Um, so that, that's a shame too, because you know, what fills the gap often in that, and in those cases is, is people who have the money to spend to, to advance their interests. Uh, when people don't know what's paying, uh, what's happening, you can't pay attention. Uh, all right, uh, we'll close. You know, promote the book uh, and give the name and spell your name and tell folks where they can get it. Go ahead. Well, you can get the book uh, on Amazon. It's Down Ballot, How a Local Campaign Became a National Referendum on Abortion. Uh, publisher is Three Fields Books, which is the uh, a trade imprint, nonfiction trade imprint of the University of Illinois Press. It's also available on their website and it's in physical stores in Barnes & Noble, uh, in the Chicagoland area as well. So Patrick Wool, W-O-H-L. Excellent. Uh, Patrick, thank you very much for being on the show. Appreciate it tremendously. Thanks for having me, Ben. I appreciate it. All right. That's Patrick Wool. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Mm-hmm.